Good morning. How are we doing? Are we awake? All right, well, this week, in my preparation for this message, I was struggling, just struggling. I, I usually um, uh, find it a little easier than it was this week, and uh, maybe part of the reason is because the content and the, uh, not really the content, but the application of where we're going to go is something that is not strong. I'm just not strong at it. And uh, maybe that was part of the reason. Maybe I wasn't praying enough. I don't, I don't know. But uh, I was wrestling with this text, and so we're going to give it a whirl and hope that it's biblical. All right, well, when the uh, Avengers was released in theaters last year, it crushed the previous record with a monstrous $200 million in opening weekend sales. People love the movie, and so Christina and I decided we're going to get it on DVD and watch it. I didn't care for it that much. Uh, many loved it. I didn't. Um, some people love red beets. I hate them. I think they're horrible. I don't know how you eat them. I love the fly fish. Some people find that mind-numbing. I would never just stand for hours on end staring at fish that aren't doing anything. Um, everywhere you go, people are divided about things, and we shouldn't expect anything different when it comes to Jesus. Last week, we covered that Jesus is the eternal word of God, distinct from God, yet fully God, personal, relational, and the creator of the universe. We saw that life was in Jesus and that he is the light of men and that the light always wins over the darkness, always. The identity of Jesus is what divides people, who he is, his person and his work. And because of that, we have a great mission. We are to bear witness, to talk about, to testify to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Just like everything in life, people will be divided about this. But our mission stays the same. Be faithful to spread the gospel truth and God will produce the results. Sovereign grace is both the power and peace of our mission. I guess what I'm hoping God does through this sermon is to awaken confidence in all of us that the hill that we are called to take is takeable. That God calls and equips us for his mission and by his sovereign grace, stuff happens. So let's pray about that. Let's pray about that. Father in heaven, thank you for your gospel, and I pray that we can delight in it. Delight in it so much that we bear witness to it and its power and influence in our lives. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit who is in us, compelling us on this mission. God, give us success in Christ's name. We pray, amen. Keep your Bibles open to John 1, if you're not already there. We're going to start with the witness. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. 90% of the time that you read John in this gospel, it refers to John the Baptist, never the Apostle John. The other 10% is Simon Peter's dad. So when you read John in John, don't think John, think John. The Baptist not the apostle. God oftentimes sends particular people at particular times on particular missions. 
John's was to pave the way for Jesus. Roughly 400 years before John hit the scene, God prophesied through Malachi the prophet, Malachi 3, 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's the last book of the Old Testament saying, in the future, God is going to come. He's going to arrive on this scene, and before he does, he'll send a messenger to clear the way for him. Have you ever used one of those old-time water pumps? You know, you'll crank your arm off on those things, and no water's coming. But then as soon as you pour some water in and prime that pump and keep it going, soon enough, the water is going to come. The fresh water is going to come. God promised to send a messenger to prime the pump. And he sent and commissioned John, a common man, just a regular guy. But he put him on a mission, and he gave him a burning passion for it. Verse 7 He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. John's mission was to bear witness about the light. A bright light was coming, and John was to introduce it. John was to direct people's attention to that light. Now, if I'm sleeping and Christina comes into the dark room, uh, I just want a warning call, right? Just let me know the light is coming. I, I want to keep my retinas healthy, all right? Just warn me a little bit. I really like the way Matthew Henry put it. John was like the night watchman that goes around the town proclaiming the approach of the morning light to those that have closed their eyes and are not willing themselves to observe it. The sun was on the rise. And John was saying, hey, everyone, look at the light. Look at the light, the beautiful sunrise. Now, why is he doing this? You see, John's a rugged guy. If you know anything about John, he's a rugged guy. Why not just hunt and fish all day and eat weird stuff? (laughs) All right? Verse 7, that all might believe through him. This is referring to John, not Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith, what we trust in. John was only the agent of faith sent on mission to draw as many as possible to Christ. And John knew his place. Verse 8 says, He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John, John's purpose was not to build the megachurch of John or to hit a million Facebook friends or to start a movement centered on his personality Jesus was primary, John was secondary, and this is exactly what John preached. Mark 1, 7, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Witnesses eat, sleep, and breathe the supremacy of Christ, doing what they can to draw people's attention to him. No doubt, John's role was unique in history, but God is still sending men and women as witnesses. In fact, I would argue that every Christian is sent as a witness. Every Christian has a testimony of how the gospel radically changed them. It's the truth applied. And God's heart is to reach out to men and women and children from all nations and all tongues with his gospel and change lives. And he does it through 
Us. Us. Think about it. God sent someone to you. God sent someone to you. God changed the person by grace and sent them to you and used them to change you. Parents, grandparents, best friends, pastors, teachers, um, relatives, whoever it was, God sent them to you to bear witness, to draw attention to the light of Jesus Christ. Can we all agree that there are people all around us people that we love and care for that are stuck in darkness and they need a little light. They need the light to shine. I'd like to share something personal with you from my heart. First, a weakness in myself and then some fears that I have and then a vision that I have for this church. And it might help you to take a few notes so that you can remember them and pray about them. So here they are. My weakness now, I say that, it's like my weakness. No, I have weaknesses, all right? I'm broken. I got all kinds of them. This is just one of the many. All right. I'm not a very good evangelist. I'm, I've preached the gospel to hundreds of people. I've shared the gospel one-on-one, but not as much as what I believe God wants me to. I know how to do it. That's not the issue. I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared that I'll offend someone because I tend to be a sharp guy standing for truth. And so I'm going to offend. I'm going to say something dumb and they're going to get turned off. I'll offend them by being too sharp. I'm scared that I'll force the conversation and make it awkward. It's like people are trying to do something at the supermarket, running their stuff through. Have you heard about Jesus? And there's a, you know, a six mile long line. People are like, I just want groceries, man. No. I'm even scared that the person will probably not repent and believe. Or at least that's what I think and has been my experience. Fear, even fear of failure, shuts me down. And I've been disappointed um, that God has never used me to directly convert someone in front of me that I could see. That disappoints me. I I don't get it. And um, I think it's probably a prideful disappointment to make Jonathan look great. Maybe I should be more scared about the root of the problem. I don't love God or the glory of God like I should. And I don't love people like I should. So little cowering in fear, me, struggling with this. Isn't that the real issue? We don't love God and we don't like people like we should. Here are some of my fears. In the reading and research that I have done, many churches are simply unfaithful when it comes to witnessing, and they are wasting away. Think about it. If churches don't try new stuff to reach people, um, then there is no fruit. Isn't something wrong? If new people are not being changed by the gospel, won't the church dry up? Apply that here at Jerusalem. I don't feel particularly gifted at evangelism. You probably don't either, except for maybe a few of you, and yet it is a critical part of a healthy, vibrant, existing church where God is at work. Agreed? If we ignore being faithful witnesses to our community, we are essentially ignoring God's great mission for us and could potentially grow cold. I just read a quote this morning at my computer, Francis Chan. He said this, 
I think one of the biggest problems with evangelism is that no one feels like it's their job. Boom! As one of your leaders, I'm simply scared. Um, I'm scared to reach out. I'm scared to dream big and go for it. I'm scared to put emphasis on evangelism here and in my own life because I don't want to be measured by numbers. And neither do you. And, and I don't want you to live in guilt about this. Oh, we just got to evangelize more. I'm just a terrible Christian. I've never shared my faith. I don't want you to live in guilt. And I don't want our church to be consumed with numerical growth when health is important. I'm even a little scared that some of you don't want to grow because you're content with the way things are now. And these fears in us, they paralyze us and can take from us greater faithfulness and fruitfulness and joy. Okay, it's out of the bag. You know now. Imperfect and fearful as we may be, God is bigger and God is at work. Now here's God's vision for this church. I think we all agree that it is good when God changes someone's life. We're like, yes, it works. They used to be and now they're Grace is a powerful thing. And I think we all agree that the gospel is power and it changes people and that's really, really good. What if we all worked together, contributed our highest level of commitment and excellence to do a couple simple things? Here they are. Simple thing number one, commit together to pursue our greatest joy in God. We don't have that, folks, we're gonna die. I mean, that's just what's gonna happen. But if we have that, taking small steps. See, the reason John the Baptist was effective is because God sent him, God equipped him, and God gave him a passion for Christ. When we are enjoying God, it is more likely that other people will see that joy in our lives and will follow us to him. Secondly, commit together to pray for opportunities, courage, faithfulness, and success. I think if we pray that God brings us opportunities to share the gospel, I think he will. I think he will. And if we pray for courage and faithfulness to bear witness, I think he will help us out. And if we ask for success, he just might give it. He just might give it. Number three, commit together to practice outreach and evangelism. I was at the Global Leadership Summit uh, at LCBC just down the road this weekend and heard Bob Goff say that he keeps a little uh, note on his mirror in the bathroom and this is what's on the note. Love God, love people, do stuff. That's the two greatest commandments uh, mixed with the Great Commission. It's summarized in six words. Love God first and his love in you will spill out over into the streets to other people who will feel that love, see that light, and then do something. Share Christ with someone. Obey Christ for the glory of God. That's what it is to be a faithful witness. This is all really scary to talk about. Quite frankly, it's easier just to ignore it and go about your business. It's possible that some of you are sitting there and you can honestly say, I have never in my entire life shared Jesus Christ with anyone. And I get your pain. I understand. And rather than beating ourselves up about that, what if we confess it to God, pray about it, commit to being more faithful in the future, and take small steps together as a team just to, to do it together? 
We're not alone in this battle and we don't have to be. That's a dream that I have for us. I believe God is calling us to reach people together by his power and grace. Who is God sending you to? A friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a child, a parent? God has given you a sphere of influence. He is sending you to that sphere of influence, and we just need to be concerned about our faithfulness within that sphere. We just have to trust him. All right, we got to keep moving. The light. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Jesus is the eternally true or genuine light that was coming into the world or coming into his earthly ministry. You see, Jesus was already in the world according to verse 10. And so coming into the world here is beginning his earthly ministry. This shining light that conquers the darkness enlightens everyone. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone is saved, but rather that Jesus shines his glory, the glory of God, in the dark world for everyone, and everyone is therefore accountable before God. Man is trapped in darkness, refusing to come into the light, and yet Jesus shines through the gospel. Full-orbed spiritual enlightenment is only for those who believe and trust in Christ. Jesus is the light of the world, and the light will expose everyone. The light will expose the darkness and save some from all nations, tribes, tongues, people, groups. Jesus made the world, then entered it, and then shined in dark places. Online, you can buy a New York Yankees Babe Ruth jersey, a replica jersey, for about 100 bucks. In May of last year, an authentic Babe Ruth jersey worn by the great Bambino in 1920 sold for over $4.4 million, the most expensive of any sports memorabilia ever. Why such a big difference? Because genuineness is pricey. Businesses manufacture all kinds of stuff to look like the real thing. Replicas everywhere, but they can't manufacture genuineness. I guess you could be a genuine replica, but you see what I'm saying. This is why it's a tragedy for us to settle for the cheap and imitation thrills and joys of the world. Replicas work for some things, but they're terrible for spiritual things. Jesus Christ is the only real, authentic, genuine light that shines in the darkness for our greatest joy. Never settle for a replica. Never buy reproductions or mock-ups. Make sure your heart delights in the real thing. The reality is so many people sadly settle for replicas. The rejectors. Rejectors settle for cheap replicated joy. Verse 10 and 11. The world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You see, they loved the darkness rather than the light because their hearts were evil. And the darkness offered them some cover. So they ran into the darkness and stayed there. And Isaiah prophesied that this would happen. He was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hide their faces. You see, eyes that grow accustomed to the darkness close even tighter when a bright light appears and shines on them. There were people in the first century who directly saw Jesus do miracles. 
In fact, the Jews, the the leaders, they knew he raised from the dead. They made up some weird story and paid off some people so that the truth didn't get out there. They knew it, yet they rejected Jesus. We have to understand how dark the darkness really is. When distinguished people arrive at at an important place, it brings fanfare, does it not? That's just lights are coming out. But the arrival of the most distinguished man of all of history brought boos from the masses. We booed God. We didn't want him. Even his own Jewish subculture despised him. Familiarity breeds contempt. Isn't that true? For many, the closer they get to Jesus, they start recognizing what he's really about and they don't want him. Many found him hard to swallow Uh, In John 6, Jesus was teaching. A bunch of his disciples are listening and they weren't getting it. And they responded, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And Jesus knows that they don't like it and he knows that he's offending them, but he doesn't stop. He keeps pressing. And he says in John 6, 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. That's sovereign grace. People smell that, God's sovereign over all things. So, I don't like that. So something wild happens in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus didn't pull punches. And as a result, some people rejected him. Sometimes saying things, saying certain things that need to be said will just turn people away. I think it's true that unfamiliarity breeds contempt too. We fear and disapprove things we don't understand. They didn't get Jesus. And therefore, they felt threatened by him. They were blinded by their own determined ignorance. There's only one thing powerful enough to break through the darkness of the human heart, a sovereign and supreme light. The world will always be filled with rejectors and Receivers. I'm not talking about Heinz Ward here or any, anybody in the NFL receivers. That, don't think that. Football's almost there, so my mind was going there, and I'm like, don't, you know. The receivers, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, you have to let that sink into your soul. Can you imagine having the authority, having the right to say, I am a child of God? Receiving and believing are equivalent here. We receive and believe him for all that he is, Savior, Messiah, Chosen One, Lord, Master, God with us. Unlike genetics, you can't pass this to your kids through natural childbirth. I've heard it said, God has no grandchildren. I think that's kind of an interesting phrase. Paul said in Romans 9, 8 that It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Who are the receivers? The children of God's gracious promise. You see, not everybody is a child of God in the full sense of that meaning. We were by nature children of wrath, according to Paul. What John calls children of the devil So something has to change in us for us to become a child of God. And that power is God's sovereign grace through faith. 
Faith is the authoritative seal on the spiritual birth certificate. It's done, finished, official. You are a cherished child of God with the full benefits of an heir. Your faith is the key. When the apostle writes, he gave the right to become children of God, he uses exousion, or the power of authority and of right. Your faith authoritatively declares your sonship, your daughtership. When college kids come home, they tend to be hungry, really hungry. And so they come home, and if they start rooting through the, uh, the refrigerator uh, and grabbing food out, everybody's okay with it because they are entitled. It's their right to open up the refrigerator and to eat the food. Now, if some random Harvard student shows up in your, uh, you know, by your, by your thing that keeps it cold, refrigerator, wasn't coming to me, um, by your refrigerator, and they start rooting through, you're like, Dude, what? Why are you in my house? I don't even know who you are. They're, they're not entitled to that. They're not a son. They're not a daughter. Belief means God is your dad. And what he has, he gives to you. It's rightfully yours in Christ. He's rich. He's powerful. He's important. And he says of you, you shall be sons and daughters to me. Paul said, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Some of you just simply need to hear it as a pick-me-up today. You're a daughter of the king. You're a son of the king. And it is your right to say it because of what Jesus Christ did. Do you realize what had to happen for you to be called a son of God, a daughter of God? Look at the brutality of the cross. He did that so you could sleep at night secure in your identity as a child and inheritance that you receive in him. He endured agony so you could enjoy affinity. You are loved by your dad. The most precious thing in life is knowing, I mean really, really knowing, that by grace through faith, God loves you as a warm and affectionate. This warmth, this love, this affection comes to us by sovereign grace, the sovereign grace of our God. Look at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Theologians call this regeneration or being born again, to be re generated is to be born again. Simple term. And there are two huge truths to pull from verses 12 and 13. Number one, the gospel calls everyone to believe. Therefore, everyone is responsible before God to believe. We either receive by faith or reject by non-belief. Secondly, it is God's sovereign grace that causes the new birth. There is only one way to be born again. God. It's not complicated to see what the apostle means here. He's being so clear. Blood doesn't make you a child of God. Neither does the will or desire of human flesh or the will of man. The only child maker is God. Yeah, but my grandfather was a pastor. No, God. But my family always, no, God. 
But my kids are, no, God. But I made a choice, yes. But why did you make a choice? God. God told us very clearly through the Apostle Paul in Romans 9, 16 that his grace depends not on human will or exertion, but on himself who has mercy. Being born again has nothing to do with working at it or trying harder. It has everything to do with what God has done for you. Later in chapter 6, John writes, the flesh is of no avail. We didn't assist God in being born again. We are born by his sovereign grace. Tertullian, he's an early church father of the second century, said, people are not born Christians, but made such. Who makes Christians? God makes Christians. But don't let the sovereign grace of God diminish our responsibility to repent and believe. I will admit with you, I'm with you on this, that reconciling God's sovereign grace with our human responsibility is both complex and perplexing. But as I continue to grow in my faith, uh, it becomes more and more clear to me from the Bible that God's sovereign grace is behind my response to him. I believe it's my faith, but that's true because God sovereignly gave it to me. I have chosen to turn from sin, but only because God granted me repentance. I love God, but only because God took the initiative to sovereignly love me first. I chose to follow Christ, but only because God chose me before the foundation of the world. Behind every spiritual reality for you and for me is the sovereign grace of God. Now, I know there's mystery here, but sovereign grace is meant to produce something in us, excessive joy in us, because we were not born of the flesh. We were born of the Spirit, John 3, 6. Sovereign grace generates gratitude because God saved us, not because we did something right, but because he was merciful and made us clean through regeneration, Titus 3, 5. Sovereign grace produces humility and compassion and love because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, 1 Peter 1, 3. It is overwhelmingly clear God's sovereign grace broke through the darkness of our sinful hearts and shined. And that is why we are children of God. The American dream has crept in very slyly to poison and infect our theology. We are so self-sufficient, so pull ourselves up by the bootstraps that we at least want to say, I had something to do with my salvation. I, had so- I-, I did something to be right and accepted with-, with God. But every dollar that we shift from God's account of sovereign grace to our account of human exertion or independence is theft of the glory he rightly deserves. In that transfer is a diminishment of praise for God. Sovereign grace is important, not only because it's true, but also because it magnifies the lavish love and mercy and compassion of God as he pursues and saves the undesirable, the lost, the down and out, the broken, the hostile rebels, and through the wonder of sovereign grace, liberates them through the cross. It is the hound of heaven chasing down sinners and redeeming them from darkness, shining the light on their darkness 
Not because they were like, oh, please. But because he said, you. I want to shine my life in your life and transform you by my sovereign grace. This is important because Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 that God's sovereign grace is meant to lead us to praise God. Think of how many people learn about sovereign grace, learn about things like election and predestination and God choosing people, and they say, God's not like that. I'm not going to worship a God like that. People write books about this, saying that, you know, weird things about these things. And I just want to say, why does Paul put emphasis that this is the praise of God. Why back in John, uh, John 6, I believe it was, where people heard what Jesus was saying about the sovereign grace of God, that they're not coming to God unless the Father draws them, and they hear that and they said, nope, I am done with that guy. There's something in us that just says, I want it to be me, 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 me. And God is saying, it's not you. It's me. I took the initiative with you. Because if we get that principle as one of the foundational principles of Jerusalem Church, there is going to arise in us a praise of God. We're going to speak so highly of of what God has done by his grace in our lives that it's going to infect people. They're going to say, he did that for you. Yeah, he did, and I didn't even deserve it. He just showed up one day and just radically changed my life. To him be the praise. To him be the glory. To him is all my worship because he chased me down when I was lost in darkness and he changed me. Amen? Isn't it clear from these eight verses? I get worked up about this. Isn't it clear from these eight verses that God's sovereign grace is behind everything? God sovereignly sent John to witness to the light The light sovereignly appeared in the world that he sovereignly made. The light was sovereign over John, and it was in God's sovereign plan that Jesus would be rejected by his own people. That's why he was sent to shine, and God sovereignly gave him for us, gave us new birth, and the right, the right, the authority to be his children. He made that possible. Jesus is the most polarizing figure of of history. I totally agree and affirm that he unites. Yes, he does. I am united to the Father through Jesus Christ. I am united to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, through him. So he unites, but he also divides. Some receive him as sovereign king of the universe. Others reject him. Some people believe and are therefore God's children, and some people don't believe because they are his enemies. One question I want to leave you with. Are you a receiver and believer or a rejecter and defector? If you have received and believed in Jesus, then you are secure as God's child. And you belong to a family that walks with you and loves you and works with you in the trenches for God's mission. Be confident in that identity that you are his Be confident, Jerusalem, and be confident in your mission that we are sent as witnesses to a dark world. And if you're sitting here and you have rejected Jesus Christ and defected, please consider the greater advantages and pleasures of knowing Christ and being counted among the secure and loved children of God. Don't you want to be part of us? We want you to be part of us. Join us in God's mission.
Let's pray. Father, I pray that you use this uh, word from John, uh, a word about the eternal light of God shining in dark places. God, thank you for shining in our hearts. Where would we be without that loving person who was changed by God's grace coming to us and teaching us what it means to follow Jesus Christ? And God, I confess the sin in my life that I am flat out scared. I, I just, I lose creativity out of fear. I mean, it's ridiculous, God. So just help me be a good leader, one that is transparent, one that is humble, one that knows his weaknesses, but then work in me and work in us to be transformed into simple witnesses, to bear witness about the light. And God, if we're scared about that, yeah, send the Holy Spirit to do something radical in our lives that we can just tell one person, maybe as a first step, you know, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus. Whatever it would be. Uh, The people who have the gift of evangelism here, multiply it, God. Help them to be just talking about Jesus all the time and then give them success. You don't have to have to give me success, God. Just give someone success that the gospel can go for lives. Make us a church about life change and about Jesus and about grace, sovereign grace, God. Thank you that you are in control. May we worship you in this. In Christ's name we pray, amen.